brought to you by CGTN Europe. Hello and welcome to this week's Razor podcast. I'm Emma Keeling. And I'm Shinny Somara. Today on the podcast, we learn why fish swim in schools. Um, and what we can do is we can develop a, what's called a biometric robot, a robot that swims like a real fish. It really behaves like a real fish. And the great thing about the robot is we can measure precisely how much energy it uses. Oh, I have so many fish jokes. Is this a good time to, to launch into a few of those, Shinny? It's always a good time for your jokes, Emma. So Emma, why do you think fish swim in schools? Well, it's a classic joke, and if you believe it, it's because they can't walk. And have you thought of a fish pun yet, or do you need more time to mull it over? Nice! (laughs) Well, animal behaviour, and specifically fish school behaviour, has fascinated science for centuries. Recent developments in technology has given some scientists an opportunity to test out some theories about why fish would school together. With that in mind, I spoke to Ian Cousin, Professor of Biodiversity and Collective Behaviour at the University of Constance in Germany. We recently released a really fascinating video of the story on our Razor Science Show YouTube channel, but we thought we'd also share the full interview with Professor Cousin here with you now. Enjoy. My name is Ian Cousin. I'm Director of the Max Planck Institute of Animal Behaviour. Um, and I study collective animal behavior, so how swarms and flocks and herds and even human crowds uh, function. What's the latest research you're conducting at the moment based around fish? Well, in a recent study, we wanted to understand the sort of age-old problem of why do fish school? It's long been hypothesized that there could be some energetic uh, benefits because as a fish swims, it, it sort of swirls the water behind it in, in what are called vortices. And then there's the potential for an individual following this fish to exploit the energy from those vortices to save energy as it moves. And of course, moving in an aquatic environment, just as it is for humans, is very costly. Um, And so we wanted to ask whether that could be one of the benefits of schooling. Haven't we typically assumed that fish swim in schools to protect themselves from predators? Well, protection from predators is absolutely critically important. That's one of the main drivers for schooling, for sure. And we've studied that extensively. But there can, of course, be different advantages. You know, if you're already in a school, if, for example, you know, the, the threat of predation forces you to move together, then there may be other benefits, such as exploiting the, 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 the hydrodynamics, the, the way that the, the water flows around other individuals. And so there's not sort of one answer why the fish school. There could be many, many reasons. So now you've employed robotics to help you with your research. Tell me about the technology. Well, one of the the great challenges is we've we've thought that fish may benefit from being able to exploit the the way other fish move the water. But actually testing that has been remarkably difficult. We cannot sort of ask a fish, you know, are you saving energy or not? Um, And what we can do, however, is we can develop what's called a biometric robot, a robot that swims like a real fish. It really behaves like a real fish. And the great thing about the robot is we can measure precisely how much energy it's using. So by building multiple robots, we can create a school where we can measure the properties that in the real world are very hard to do so. Can you describe the robotic fish? It looks like a fish, it swims like a fish, it produces the same characteristics as it swims through water as a fish. And that's also very important for us because we want to 
not just emulate biology, but also uh, develop robots that can, for example, search the oceans or um, you know, look for uh, phytoplankton blooms and so on. And so there's, there's real benefits in trying to understand how does nature solve these problems so elegantly? And can we copy some of these ideas from nature and to develop you know, new types of robotics? So the robotics you know, both tells us something new about the biology, but it also helps us get closer to being able to emulate the beauty of nature in, in, in this type of form that we can use ourselves to, to gain knowledge about our environment. What's the robotic fish telling us? So in this case, what we did was we put uh, pairs of robots together that would swim together. And we know that when fish swim, they're, they're, they're very dynamic. They're in all sorts of different positions with respect to each other. Uh, and previously it was thought they have to be in a very fixed position if they're going to get hydrodynamic benefits. And what we showed is in actual fact, they could be anywhere with respect to their neighbors. And what's important is how they, they beat their tails, whether they, they are synchronized, whether they're anti-synchronized or somewhere in between. And what we showed was, you know, if the fish are, are side by side, then synchronizing is the best thing to do. But as a fish falls further back, then actually anti-synchronizing is the best thing to do. And in between, there's an intermediate. And so just by uh, adjusting the way the follower beats its tail with respect to a leader as a function of, of you know, the distance from that leader, could allow the fish, irrespective of where it is, to always uh, be able to save energy. So all of that information that you're gathering using this very advanced technology, what is it ultimately telling us that will help our lives as humans? Well, I think one of the important things for, for humanity, one of the great drivers of, of human innovation has just been curiosity, you know, is how does the world work? And you know, so I, I've just always loved nature and wanted to understand nature. And so that's really what drives me. I want to understand how the world works. Fish have been around on this planet for a very, very long time, and we still didn't understand, you know, all of the benefits and, uh, of schooling. Um, but yes, there can actually also be very tangible uh, benefits from this type of work for humans. For example, our work is, is because we used robotics, our work is able to very seamlessly translate to collective robotics how we can create swarms of robots that can use the sort of collective intelligence, the, sort of the, the collective mind or swarm intelligence of animal groups to help us understand the world, to help us explore dangerous places or difficult to, to reach places and to, to get information about, for example, how humans are changing uh, you know, the, 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 the climate and, and the oceans. And so there's lots of benefits for this, but I think the most important thing is just that it's interesting. You know, the, the oceans are actually very underexplored. And so I think there's a great benefit in having efficient technologies that allow us to, to interact and explore in the environment. Our robotic fish are very um, um, non-invasive. You know, we can move them through, say, a coral reef or, or, or an environment where a normal robot would cause a great disruption. The animals would scatter, they'd be scared, it would create a, a disturbance. Our robotic fish don't create those types of disturbances. Um, so it's a very... Uh, nice way to explore uh, nature and to explore um, you know for example coral reefs are, are, are being really impacted by climate change and so being able to explore them and to gather data in a way that doesn't harm the animals that live there is, is very important uh, but also you know we've, we've also found that our technology can be very good for finding things like um, uh, leaks you know say there's a, 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 a leak within the ocean environment and you want to find the source of that that leak now, this is something that this can also achieve. Can you give us a general sort of overview of the type of things you're doing at your institute? So, uh, I mean, one of the amazing things, you know, being a scientist in our time right now 
is that there's this explosion of new technologies that we can use to understand how the world works. Um, so one technology we've invented um, is immersive holographic virtual reality. You know, so I had this dream that, you know, what, one of the problems of studying collective behavior, it, it, you know, if I'm influencing you and you're influencing me, it's kind of hard to work out who's sort of really you know, in control or who's influencing whom more. If there's a third person, am I influencing you via that third person? Or am I, you know, it, it, it becomes very difficult. So we had this idea that what if we could create photorealistic holographic animals? So the animals are interacting with holograms in real time. Then we can control um, you know, the, the way that the interaction operates. And so that's one of the techniques, that, technologies that we've developed. Another uh, big technology we've developed is a large imaging environment. In fact, in March, we're opening a new one that's 15 by 15 by 8 meters. And this allows us to track with sub-millimeter resolution at 300 times a second the motion of animals, how they're moving their bodies. And also, you know, we can reconstruct computationally their visual field. So we can see what are the animals looking at? How are they paying attention to each other? How are they moving together? And you know, this is open to anyone in the world to use. So we, we're going to study from you know, tiny little insects up to human tribes within this type of environment. The resources that you have available to you at the Institute are just so cutting edge. And bearing in mind that we live in quite a commercial world, why is it worth investing in this kind of research? I mean, I think that's one of the, the, the problems that, that scientists have you know, across the world is that um, people seem to think that you know, there needs to be a reason, a, a direct benefit to humanity for research. But in actual fact, if we look at some of the major innovations in, in, in science, you know, for example, the structure of hemoglobin, um, which is you know, what carries the oxygen in our blood, that was studied because it was interesting, not because someone thought there was a direct benefit. Um, the structure of DNA, for example, um, you know, was studied because it was, it was known to be important for biological life on the planet. It wasn't, you know, they didn't think of um, you know, gene uh, modification technologies and so on at that time. Uh, and so one of the, the uh, very important things about science is to give uh, people freedom to explore and to study very broadly how the world works rather than focus in on it's got to relate to us now. You know, and, and many of the discoveries that are made, um, you know, whether it's how a, a, a pond skater can skate on the surface of water or how a fish swims in a school, um, can actually then have unanticipated benefits to, to human technologies, you know, for example, developing new materials that can shed water um, naturally and so on. And so I, I think that, you know, I've always been driven by a fascination of nature rather than um, direct application. And both are important, but they're, they're both, they can work in synergy. You know? so, so our work has had unanticipated benefits, um, both in terms of, say, robotics, but also in terms of algorithms in computers that can then search for data. And actually, fact, having these algorithms function as swarms, searching for data very much like the animals do, has improved the way we, we, we can you know, do our searches on our computer, we can explore databases and so on. But that wasn't the reason we, uh, we found those algorithms. We found them because nature had found this amazing solution to a, a, a challenging problem. And then we could utilize that. So Emma, what's been exciting you in science this week? Well, as you know, I do like my space stories and February is an exciting month with three missions to Mars arriving on the planet's doorstep. Actually, two of them are hoping to land right on Mars' surface. 
So this story uh, caught my eye. So if you think of all the rockets being launched with satellites, the moon, the space stations, Mars, this is millions of litres of fuel that they're using. Now, some of it is not as toxic as it used to be, but it could be greener. And at a former military base in Maine in America, a rocket called Stardust lifted off, becoming the first commercial launch of a rocket powered by bio-derived fuel. And Sasha Derry, who invented the biofuel, he won't say what it's made of, uh, but he did say that it can be sourced from farms around the world. He's the founder and chief executive of Blue Shift Aerospace, and he and his team have spent more than six years refining the formula and designing a modular hybrid engine, which is also unique. And he says that it costs less per kilogram than traditional rocket fuel and is completely non-toxic, and it's also carbon neutral fuel. So that's quite exciting. And I guess the important thing to say here is we're not talking like a massive rocket off to the moon. Stardust is just little. It's only about six meters long and weighs about 250 kilos. But because it is relatively cheap to fly and doesn't need a high-tech infrastructure like larger rockets, it will help make space research accessible to more people, such as students. So you've currently got your big rockets like SpaceX going to space with thousands of kilograms of payload and, and people, but there's no space launch service allowing one or two payloads to go to space. And so Derry and his team want to be the first Uber service to space. They want to be like a space Uber, would you believe? So, you know, Uber, the, the car riding service. It's kind of like the Prius of rockets. <laughs> exactly. Even greener than the Prius. Um, but yes, student scientists and even you and me, if we felt the need, Shinny, we could, you know, get one of these rockets. Blue Shift Aerospace um, does want to get into on big missions as well. Uh, their long term goal is to build, you know, whole rockets out of um, nitinol, which is a metal alloy of nickel and titanium. They think they can make them lighter and more energy efficient. Um, so Stardust flew just one mile into the sky before parachuting back to Earth. And they've got a second planned rocket, which will be suborbital, and a later version they're going to call Red Dwarf, very popular English TV show, and that's going to enter polar orbit. Um, so, yeah, they, they reckon by some estimates that the small satellite launch services could generate about $69 billion within the next decade. Um, so it's all very exciting, not just countries involved in space tech and exploration, more and more companies and, uh, and smaller countries are getting involved, although I'm wondering how crowded it's going to be up there if everybody's frantically launching rockets and satellites. <laughs> there seems to be so much going on with Mars this year. Is it just a timing thing where they've been working on loads of Mars research projects and it's all coming together now? No, it's it's basically about the window. So, um, you know, Mars moves closer and further away um, from Earth. And so we have now come into that that window of opportunity when it's the closest. And so they can get there a little faster and use a little less fuel. And um, there'll be another window coming up in, in 2022 as well. So, you know, it's just all about the, the timing, really. So, um, but yeah, so you've got the UAE launching their orbiter, their, their satellite, which is going to, you know, look at the atmosphere of Mars. And then you've got um, America or NASA have got Perseverance. And that's a rover, but really cool. They've got a little helicopter ingenuity. So this is going to be hopefully the first flight 
um, on, on Mars. And, uh, and then China is also, they're being very ambitious. So this is going to be their first ever trip to Mars and they are sending a rover, an orbiter, and also a lander. So yeah, it's it's very exciting stuff. But it's quite amazing. They must be under so much pressure knowing that they've got this little window and if they miss it, it's going to have to be a few more years before they can realise their sort of te- technological dreams. So ExoMars, uh, the Rosalind Franklin rover, they were meant to be there at the same time as the as UAE and, and NASA and China. Um, but unfortunately, they um, had a few problems getting their parachutes to work. Very important, because obviously when you come through the very thin Martian atmosphere, plummeting towards the Earth, you need some way of, of slowing down. So they have now shifted their new launch date. It'll be somewhere between August and October in 2022. So yeah, they're going there. They want to search for life. Whether Perseverance will get in there ahead of them and find out that information first, I don't know. But ExoMars has this this big drill. It goes down to about two meters. So they're hoping to drill down into the surface surface and um, and find some answers down there. So yeah, every couple of years there's a there's that perfect window um, for for these launches to happen. So Shinny, that's me. I'm dropping out of space back in the office. What have you got for us? What's excited you in science? Well, I'm bringing us back down to earth um, with a story of conservation. Scientists at the College of Veterinary Medicine have expressed concerns in the way that they transport rhino. Because as an endangered species, one of the strategies of the conservationists is to relocate them or translocate these specific breeding rhinos into remote areas to kind of widen the gene pool. And the way that they translocate them is by darting them with a gun from a helicopter, typically. And then how they actually transport these tranquilized rhinos is actually really important because they're using really strong anesthesia drugs to tranquilize these these massive rhinos. And these drugs are very potent opioids, sometimes a thousand times more potent than morphine. And the side effects of administering a drug like this to the rhinos and other mammals is respiratory issues, uh, reduced oxygen in their blood, a higher metabolism, and even depression, which isn't good if you're trying to get rhinos to breed. And so once the rhinos have been darted, they need to be transported in a certain way, usually, usually by being airlifted. And the conventional way that has been happening for 10 years is to suspend the rhino by their feet. And when this technique is used on horses, it actually causes um, impaired breathing because their abdominal organs are so heavy that they push against their lungs and chest cavity. Mm. And so um, a group of vets have conducted a study on whether you transport rhinos by hanging them from their feet or actually on their side. And they've debunked a long-standing assumption that hanging them by their feet is more risky. Actually, the research is showing that it's less risky, which is great because, you know, there's always been this kind of worry that they're putting endangered species at more risk. But now they can say with confidence that 
transporting rhino in this way is the best way to do it. And so now their research is being developed to look at longer durations of transporting rhinos this way, because then they can start looking at trying to breed rhinos in even more remote areas over further distances. I love this story, although it's still a hell of a way to fly, isn't it? By your feet. I mean, (laughs) I know we're saving them, but the idea of it is quite comical, but it has such a serious aspect to it. And, you know, these vets, you know, they they really care so much for them. So there you have it. Another edition of the Razor podcast, complete with a couple of fish jokes. Remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Now, listeners, just to let you all know that there won't be a Razor episode next week or the week after that. We're going to be reformatting the show to bring you even better content. So don't be alarmed if the feed is dark, i.e. gone missing for a few weeks. Rest assured we will be back and we'll be better than ever.